Welcome to the final for now episode of Kindle Curiosity. So in the early days of motherhood, when Davy was a sleepy, sleepy newborn, I had this vision for how I was going to continue all of these various projects. And I kept inviting people to the podcast and trying to schedule interviews. And suddenly he started teething. That changed everything. (laughs) So not only is it hard to find the time to podcast and schedule. Um, and I hate to leave him if he's really, really fussy, but also like my mental bandwidth is just not there. (laughs) So the mental and emotional bandwidth to have an intelligent conversation with someone, this is not the season for that. So this, uh, episode, Sarah, works for NASA and she's also a quilter. So she's an engineer and an artist, a quilter. And she is one of the first people that I thought of when I wanted to start this podcast. And one of the first people that I invited, um, I had so much excitement for the podcast that I invited basically everyone you've heard, uh, in the first week (laughs) and everybody said yes. And so I recorded a lot of episodes and then I've struggled to get them all edited, Um, so I wanted to put this one up before I put everything in the vault. So my hosting podcast hosting cost a fair chunk of change. Um, it was coming due for renewal. And since I'm not going to be able to continue podcasting, I did not renew the podcast hosting. So this episode, and I think there was space for a couple of others are still in iTunes, And I'm going to work on archiving them on YouTube because I can do that for free. Um, I don't know how long that's going to take. So for now, consider the podcast kind of like in the Disney vault. I'm putting it in the vault, except for this episode because it's brand new. Uh, But I am just editing this really quickly on my iPad. I do not have the music. (laughs) This is a really rough cut. Actually, I didn't edit our conversation at all. So this is the raw uncut version. It wasn't as bad as I thought. Honestly, the, the fact that I would spend five hours to fix this, just to like take the air out and take my having to rephrase things, um, was basically a giant waste of time in retrospect. (laughs) motherhood gives you all the perspective. Uh, so we recorded this well over a year ago. I wasn't expecting yet. I'll talk about not having kids and what Sarah says about motherhood giving you focus. Um, like first in like the baby months, uh, it makes you crazy and you don't have time. And then it kind of gives you clarity of focus with how you want to spend your time and what you want to do. And I'm definitely finding that, um, I would love to come back to the podcast sometime and not spend so long editing it but I'm not making any promises right now. Um, but it is something that I would love to do eventually, uh, at some point, it just might not be, it might be a little bit more a one-off episode instead of the commitment of doing it every other week. That was a lot, uh, even when I didn't have kids. So, um, if you want to find the archived episodes, I will put the information on kindlecuriosity.com so you can get to those. Um, and I'm still posting what I'm doing on Instagram at Sarah D shots. Anytime I can, I have the iPad I'm drawing with Davy in my lap. I have a lot of creative ideas. I find that motherhood is definitely like increased my creativity, but it's decreased the time that I have to put the thoughts and ideas into action. So, 
Uh, this is what I'm doing for now. Thank you all for your support of the podcast. I have really loved doing it. Um, and I would love to return to it again someday. Uh, that's all for now. So there's going to be an awkward pause (laughs) and then it will cut to the footage, uh, without any music or anything. Um, thanks again for everything and I'll see you over on Instagram. So I'll just welcome you to the podcast and then we'll get started with questions. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking at the wall behind you and I really love all the quilting pieces that you have hanging in your studio. So how long have you been, have you quilted? Um, It's been about seven years. I started in uh, 2011. So I had actually made one quilt quite a while before that in like, 2004 time frame, I made a t-shirt quilt from running quilts. And I went to a sewing store when I was at my parents' house over the holidays. And a very kind lady took me around and showed me all the different things I needed. And I made that t-shirt quilt and I pieced it and I put a backing on it. And I never actually finished it. Um, It never actually got quilted. So it sat and it sat and it sat. And over the next however many years that was, I kept thinking, man, it'd be really fun to learn more about quilting and I could finish that t-shirt quilt and keep going. And then in 2011, I finally got started again. Um, I took a class at Joanne's Fabrics about, gosh, I don't even remember. It was just how to make a, I think it was a pillowcase actually, not a quilt, but just a basic sewing class. And after that, I said, okay, that was fun. I went out to Walmart and then got a hundred dollar sewing machine (laughs) And started from there. Um, I think I ended up taking one more class at Joann's that taught me how to do quilt binding. But from it was mostly um, learning from resources that were available online and in books. Um, so for the first couple years, I would say I quilted fairly casually, I guess. And then um, three or four years ago, I just really got into it and have been kind of obsessed with it ever since. And so did you sew growing up at all? No. Um, My mom had a sewing machine and she sewed very occasionally. So you hear a lot of people say, oh, my mom sewed and I wasn't interested. And then later I was. My mom sewed in the sense that she knew enough to make us Halloween costumes when we were kids. Um, I had like a project in high school that she helped me make a costume for. But she didn't really sew or quilt either. Um, So I don't even really know where the desire came from. I just had kind of been exposed to it here and there and thought it looked like fun, thought it looked like something that I would would be interested in because I've kind of always been interested in anything artsy and craftsy. So what did you Um, enjoy doing as a little girl? Uh, well, anything arts and craftsy. So I didn't sew, but I would draw, I would do any of those kinds of like craft kits you could get at Michael's or, you know, any of those types of stores. Um, I did cross stitch. My grandmother did cross stitch. So a little bit different, but same kind of ballpark, I guess, in the crafting world. So I did do some cross stitch when I was a kid. Um, but really just a lot of drawing. My parents put me in art classes when I was pretty young. I've never asked them why, I should ask them. I guess they saw that I enjoyed it. Um, But when I was five or six, they put me in just some like, not super formal, but just, you know, extracurricular type art classes. Um, 
And I did that for several years and just was always kind of drawing and doing fun, crafty things on the side. Um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom for quite a while, but then at uh, when my siblings and I got a little older, she went back to teaching. She had been a teacher. Um, I would draw things for her kindergarten class as decorations for the wall. Um, at around middle school, I got super into Disney animation, and I was like, I'm going to be a Disney animator when I grew up, and I would draw the pictures from the Disney books onto like pieces of um, transparency. I like, I would draw them with a Sharpie and then like paint them in, you know, like an animation cell. Um, So, you know, I was just always kind of doing stuff like that. And so then when you went off to college, how did you decide what to study? So, well, I studied engineering, which probably sounds like kind of a total change in direction. (laughs) Um, there is kind of a path that leads there. So the Disney animation was around middle school. Around that time, I also became kind of interested in architecture. So kind of shifting a little bit more towards, I guess, you know, both art and like some of the technology type stuff. Um, but then when I got into high school, I was uh, I was taking all my science classes. You know, I took chemistry, I took biology, I took physics. Um, And in ninth grade, in physics class, the teacher offered us like an extra credit project that was to write a paper about um, an experiment you could do on the way to Mars. It was this contest that was sponsored by NASA and um, the National Science Teachers Association, I think. something That may not be the exact name, but something like that. Um, And I was a, a pretty good student and very eager to please and, you know, get A's. And so extra credit, I was like, awesome, sign me up. (laughs) Um, So I did the project and I actually ended up uh, getting a trip to Kennedy Space Center in Florida out of it. I was like a regional winner. Um, And so that was the first time I had ever been exposed to, to NASA, really. Now, as an additional background, I think I mentioned my mom was a teacher. My dad, um, has an engineering degree and worked as an engineer for the first maybe five to eight years of my life. And then he left engineering. But so on my dad's side, I had a little bit of that um, exposure to engineering. And my dad, even though he left engineering, was very interested in that type of thing. So my dad was real interested in astronomy. And so I knew about the stars and kind of shared a little bit of that interest. And so then at my freshman year of high school, um, I started to get really interested in NASA and it's like, I, this is something people do. This is something I could do. Like, how do I get to do that? How do I get to work for NASA? And so that's when I became really interested in engineering. Um, and so when I started looking at colleges, I started considering, you know, I'm going to study maybe mechanical or aerospace engineering. So I ended up studying aerospace engineering at Georgia tech pretty much specifically because I wanted to work for NASA. Um, And I would say for several years in there, I wasn't doing as much arts and craftsy stuff, I guess. I got real focused on NASA. I read every book I could find about space history. I thought I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, I got real into it. So that's how I decided what to study in college and what led to, you know, the rest of my career since then. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on creativity and science as like creative problems. Let me try to rephrase that question because I just started (laughs) rambling. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on creative problem solving and how creativity plays its part in science as well as in art. That's something I'm really interested in. That's why I didn't just want artists on the podcast. 
Yeah, so that's a question I get a lot, as you can imagine, with a job as an engineer, but people know that I do a lot of quilting and other creative things on the side. Um, There's definitely overlap. Um, You know, one of the popular terms that gets used a lot is STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, But I've seen a growing kind of movement to turn that into STEAM, so add an A to it, and that A is for the arts, because they do kind of go together. There's a lot of overlap. Um, For me personally, once I got into college and was doing engineering, but then still had these same kind of creative interests I had had since I was a kid, um, it started to come out in things that were kind of meshing art and technology, like graphic design, you know, photography, using your digital camera and, you know, doing edits in Photoshop, um, web design. I learned how to make a web page in like 1995. And now web Web technology has far surpassed my capabilities. Uh, If you need a basic HTML page, I am all over that. But if you need anything more, I I don't have those skills anymore. But so, you know, starting to see those areas, though, where like visual things combine with technology. Um, When I was in college, even though I was majoring in engineering, I ended up working for the student newspaper as a section editor. So I was getting to play around in early versions of InDesign, or it may not have been InDesign, but something like that, you know, doing layout and being like, well, I like how this looks. And I was very focused on that type of thing and coming up with new and creative layouts for, you know, your standard college newspaper page. Um, So that's always been kind of a mix. Um, In terms of my specific role at NASA, um, you know, there's always room for creativity and engineering and coming up with new ideas, thinking outside the box, coming up with ways to save money, to save energy, to save time, to save all three of those things Um, in the context specifically of NASA and spaceflight. You know, there's a lot of creative thought that goes into making things better, faster, cheaper. (laughs) That's a term that you hear a lot. And kind of the joke is that you can only have two of those three things. You can't have all three at once. But, you know, ideally, the goal is to try and head in that direction, you know, make things that are simpler, but more effective, make things that are more cost effective, but are still getting the job done. Um, There's a lot of things, especially in, in aerospace right now that are kind of pushing the boundaries in a way that hasn't been done in a while. Aerospace for years has been a pretty, pretty stable. Um, you know, if you want to get cynical, people would call it like old fashioned industry, like not a lot of change. We're still essentially using the same kind of rockets we were using 60 years ago when, you know, we launched the first thing into orbit, but there's always room for improvement. Um, and there's a lot of new players in the in the industry now that haven't been around for a while. You know, for a while it was just NASA and some of the big um, aerospace contractors. But now you have companies coming in like SpaceX mm-hmm. uh, with Elon Musk, who has made a bunch of money at PayPal and is now building rockets. And he's actually not the only one. There's quite a few people that made a bunch of money in the tech industry and are now building rockets and spacecraft. So trying to apply... Um, some of what they've learned in another industry in new and creative ways to the aerospace industry. So 
there's a lot of room for creativity and engineering. It's just, you, you kind of have to look at it differently. So obviously our, most of my listeners are not technical are not experts in what you do, but I'd love to try to talk about what you do at NASA. Yeah. Um, so I've done a couple different things. Um, I actually just, uh, in, in a week, I'm getting my 20 year service award, <laughs> which is kind of crazy because I, I started there as an intern in college. Um, so I worked as an intern and did a bunch of different things than just, uh, it's not even worth trying to give details because they were low-level projects. Um, but for the first half, I was in our flight dynamics um, group, which deals with um, the dynamics of flight. Uh, <laughs> that sounds really lame. Um, so it deals with with basically the, the trajectories and the path that, that you're taking, both um, for ascent, launching, and descent, coming back down, and then also while you're in orbit, so going around the Earth and making sure you are where you want to be. Um, I became a flight controller for the space shuttle. So I worked in mission control. Um, I was a rendezvous officer. So a lot of the people in mission control um, are in charge of a specific system. So you'll have the person that's in charge of the computer system and the person who's in charge of the propulsion system and the electrical system. Um, I was a rendezvous officer, which was a little bit different. We were in charge of a phase of flight Um so it was our job essentially to get the space shuttle from on the ground to at the space station or any other target in orbit. Um, by the time I came uh, into that job, we were primarily going to either the space station or the Hubble Space Telescope. So basically how you get from point A to point B, which is surprisingly complicated when <laughs> you get into orbit and you're going around the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour. Um, so the space shuttle program ended in 2011, though, and uh, I was looking around trying to find what I wanted to do next since I couldn't be a flight controller for the space shuttle anymore. Um, and I ended up moving over into um, NASA's safety organization. So we have a, an organization called Safety and Mission Assurance, um, and it's our job to, it's kind of self-explanatory, it's our job to make sure that spaceflight is as um, safe as we can make it. There is always going to be risk involved in going into space. There's kind of no way around that. Um, nothing in life is zero risk, right? I mean, you could get in a car accident driving down the street tomorrow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but space flight in particular is maybe a little more risky than other activities. But we try and do everything we can to eliminate as many hazards as possible um, and just try and go into it eyes wide open about the level of risk that we're willing and able to accept. And when you cross that line to saying that doing X, Y, Z is going to be too difficult or it's going to put the crew in too much danger, um, that kind of thing. So I support our safety organization specifically for the space station. Um, so the space station has been in orbit for t almost 20 years wow. now. Um, yeah. And a lot of people don't realize it's there. They don't realize it's crude. There have been people on the space station constantly since the year 2000. <laughs> um, you can see it from the ground sometimes if the lighting is right when it passes over your house. Um, so it's pretty cool. Um, but so there are activities going on on the space station 24-7. Um, and there's a flight control team on the ground that's working with that. And there are planning teams figuring out what we're going to do next week, the week after that, 
six months from now, two years from now. And so um, my role now is to, in our safety organization to help with that process, essentially, to help keep the space station running. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It has ups and downs. That's the thing. I mean, like, like you know, it, it, working at NASA has some of the same frustrations as any job, but uh, it has some perks that you don't find at other jobs too. Yeah. So. so speaking of perks, I've seen one of your headshots where your hair is like floating. <laughs> Was that like a test uh, zero gravity flight? You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was actually um, something I did as a volunteer. So that was not technically part of my my day job. But um, NASA used to, they unfortunately don't anymore, but they used to have a program um, where teams of uh, high school and college students and even teachers or educators could propose experiments that they want to do in microgravity. And um, they would select some teams who would get to come down to Houston and fly them on the Vomit Comet. <laughs> that's <laughs> the name of plane. Well, that's not the official name of the plane. That's the official <laughs> name of the plane. Um, it's actually it, it's several different types of airplanes can do it, but what they're called is microgravity flights. So the plane flies a very specific um, trajectory that's kind of like a roller coaster. It's going up and down and up and down and up and down. And um, at the top of each arc, you get about 30 seconds of weightlessness. Um, on the flip side, on the bottom side, you get twice the force of gravity. And so that's what gets the vomit comet nickname because if you're going back and forth between that, uh, it's not uncommon for you to vomit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I volunteered as a, as a NASA mentor to help the teams that come in get their experiments ready and uh, get their experiments in a state that will pass NASA's various requirements for things that would fly on that plane. Um, and so, yeah, one of the perks of being a mentor for that program was that you get to fly with your team. So I got to do that several times. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. I threw up the first flight, but never again after that, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> your body was like, okay, I know what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you first visited uh, the... Kennedy Space Center. What was it about that that kind of grabbed your attention? Do you remember specifically? Um, I think it was just kind of the realization that all this stuff was out there and getting to actually see it in person versus, you know, reading about it uh, in the newspaper. I mean, this was pre-internet days. Um, reading about it in the newspaper or in books. Um, at the time I went down there, there was a space shuttle that was actually on the launch pad. Uh, it was 1993, so it was the one that was about to launch and go repair the Hubble Space Telescope. If people know anything about the Hubble Space Telescope, they may remember that when it was first launched, um, the pictures that it took came back blurry. <laughs> uh, so we had to launch another space shuttle mission a couple years later to go up and fix it. Um, and it was that mission, the one that went and fixed it, that was on the launch pad. And so we got to drive around the launch pad and, you know, wow, that's the actual space shuttle sitting right there. That's so cool. And just talking to some of the people that worked there and um, hearing how they were enthusiastic about it, that all made an impression. I actually, um, so that first trip was in ninth grade. I ended up going back in 10th and 11th grade as part of the same um competition. And in the 11th grade, that third year, I came here to Houston to the Johnson Space Center instead of to Florida. Um, 
so that's kind of cool that I got that trip here. And then a few years later, I was working here as an intern. Yeah, I actually grew up in Florida. Well, I was there through like second grade. And in first grade, we went to the Kennedy Space Center. And I like I was really young, but I remember being really impressed. And like, like you said, getting to see the stuff in person rather than in a book or on the TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be good to go back as an adult. Well, if you're ever in Houston, yeah. I'll be happy to give you a tour of JFK here, show you mission control. <laughs> so you mentioned that at one point you perhaps wanted to be an astronaut and then you've pivoted and now you're an engineer. Was there anything specific that made you change your mind on that? Um, That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that specifically, I don't think. Um, I think... After I came down here and started working, I just kind of realized that maybe astronaut wasn't the right fit for me. Um, You know, the astronauts do get to fly in space, which is clearly awesome. (laughs) But um, when they're not flying in space, which is 99% of the time, Mm -hmm. um, they're doing a lot of the same jobs that I am. You know, they're supporting meetings, they're helping plan future activities, they're training, of course, if they're assigned for a flight. Um, But they're kind of doing office jobs, just just like the rest of us are office or engineering jobs. And um, at at some point, I guess I kind of just realized that I I could do all of that as an engineer. Um, There's definitely also an aspect to it that uh, being an astronaut is highly competitive. Um, And I wasn't sure if I wanted to really put myself through that over and over again. Um, There is a physical requirement for astronauts too. And while I think I could probably pass it, like I also could probably lose 20 pounds, that type of thing. And then at one point they had a vision requirement that I'm not sure I could meet. Although I think they've loosened the vision requirement quite significantly these days. Actually, after I went to Kennedy Space Center as a six-year-old, I wanted to be an astronaut. But I was told that my eyesight wasn't good enough. So I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll do something else. (laughs) Yeah, the medical requirements can be tough. Um, It's interesting. I've had people ask me, you know, do those medical requirements, how important are they? Um, And I guess I should state this is my personal opinion. This is not me on behalf of like official NASA, but um, I think they probably use the medical stuff as a weed out as much as anything. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are really qualified and would make um, fantastic astronauts. The astronaut corps has people from a really wide variety of backgrounds. Um, They have a lot of people that have military experience, of course, because that's what they hired for for a long time to be pilots. Um, But they have a lot of, you know, doctors, engineers, um, scientists, you know, the one thing in common is that they're all going to have something technical. Um, But there are people in the astronaut corps that have done just some really like crazy creative things. If you really start diving into their, their backgrounds and their, um, their biographies. Um, but yeah, so the, the medical requirements are pretty strict. Um, I think it's just, if you've got a huge pool of qualified candidates and you can only pick like 15 people, it's a way to help weed it out. And then there's a certainly a logical level. Yeah. 
there's a practical reason to have that too. You want people that are as healthy as possible because if you have somebody that gets sick in space, that's a major, major problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So let's kind of swing from the science to the art and let's talk some more about your quilting. So okay. um, let's see. I'm not even sure what to ask. <laughs> um, you talked about how you started quilting. Um, maybe just a little bit about your quilting process, like how you go about deciding what you want to make and that kind okay. of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I would say I don't have a single consistent process. It kind of depends on my starting point. So, um, when I started quilting, I used patterns that other people had designed, you know, I would say that looks cool. It has all the instructions I need. I'm going to buy that pattern. I'm going to take it home. I'm going to buy fabric and I'm going to make it. Um, over the years, as my sewing skills have improved, um, I, and I have just started to make my own patterns. Um, so these days I do a little bit of a mix. I, I still do use patterns written by other people. If it's something that I really like, or just feel like making, um, occasionally I'll test things for other people. But about half the time, I'm also just coming up with my own patterns. And that is super fun. That's just a really good way to mix my creative stuff with the technical stuff. Yeah. So I get really excited about sitting down and opening up Illustrator and drawing out what my quilt's going to look like and then doing all the math and calculating the seam allowances and figuring out cutting layouts, how to cut all my pieces out of my yard of fabric, that type of thing. I just really, really enjoy that part. Um, so these days it depends on my, you know, my starting point. If I'm designing my own, um, my own pattern, I start kind of where I just said, I, I sketch it out, um, by hand usually first, and then I'll take it onto the computer. Um, I'm pretty good with the Adobe suite of products. So I use illustrator quite a bit and draw it out there. Um, and from there, it's it's a pretty straightforward process. Um, everybody does things a little differently. I like to cut everything first most of the time. So I'll get all my fabrics laid out and cut everything. So I've got a big stack of pieces. And then I'll just sit down at the sewing machine and start going. Um, you know, some quilts come together pretty quickly. Some of them take a really long time. It all depends on how many pieces and seams they have and how careful I'm being. <laughs> um, but yeah, so and then uh, so the basic process of making a quilt is, you know, you cut the fabric, you sew it back together. And then kind of the basic definition of what makes a quilt is it has three layers. It has a top, it has a backing and it has a layer of batting in the middle. So the quilting process is then sewing all three of those layers together. Um, so to date, I've done that on my home sewing machine, but in the past couple months, I've also started renting time at a sewing store nearby to me that has a long arm machine, mm. which is like a room sized sewing machine that um, the easiest way to explain it. So if you have a sewing machine at your house that's sitting on a table, the sewing machine is staying still and you are moving the fabric under the needle of the sewing machine. So a long arm machine is the opposite of that. You load your quilt onto a frame and the sewing machine itself is on like a system of rollers. So you're moving the sewing machine around on top of it. So I'm starting to learn how to do that. Um, so you're physically everybody... moving the machine yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. you're just standing in front of it and it's got little handlebars and you're just moving it around <laughs> in whatever design you want. 
So if, if people have ever been to a quilt show or seen pictures of quilts online, if you see things that are really, really intricate with, with lots of swirls or feathers or things like that, um, it, there's a good chance it was done on a long arm. Yeah, uh, I never thought of that, but our local art museum, I'll see if I can find the piece to link to because I don't remember the name or the artist, but it was massive. It was yeah bigger than my living room, <laughs> wide and tall. <laughs> yeah. It was really, really big. And it was kind of a, a scene. And like mm-hmm. you said, the, the sewing itself was very curvy and textured. And I never yeah. really stopped to think, how did they do that? Because you certainly couldn't do that on a regular sewing machine. There's a lot of different options. Yeah. So the piecing part of the process, which is, you know, when you have all the little pieces and you're putting them together into a single quilt top, that's pretty much always done on a, you know, just like your normal sewing machine that you see at home. Um, It can also be done by hand, which takes a significantly longer amount of time. Um, I've done a little bit of hand piecing, but not very much. Um, But yeah, so the piecing process is pretty much always done on your run of the mill sewing machine, but there's lots of different things you can do um, for the quilting process. Um, There are people that can do amazing designs on their home machine too, like swirls and feathers and stuff. Um, I am not currently one of those people. (laughs) Uh, But you start to be limited by the amount of space you have at home and the amount of space um, between like your sewing machine. Exactly. They call it, I think it's called the harp space. So the amount of space there and like if you're trying to quilt, you know, let's say you want to make one for your bed, uh, like your king size bed, that's a lot of fabric and material to be trying to move around and it gets really heavy. And so when you get, there will usually be kind of like a size limit where it just becomes real difficult to to do on your own. There are people that do it for sure, but... (laughs) So do you make more quilts that are decorative or do you use them on your beds or some of both? Um, most of mine are decorative. Um, well, actually, no, I wouldn't say that. So I started to say that at first because I don't really have many quilts on the beds in my house, <laughs> but most of the quilts I have made have been for other people. And I assume slash hope that they use them in their houses. <laughs> um, so it's maybe 50-50. Um, I've made a lot of quilts for babies over the last several years. Um, I started quilting about a year before I had my first child. So my daughter is going to be six years old next week. So I started quilting about a year before she was born. Um, so I've made a quilt for her on her bed. And I have a second daughter now um, who has a couple quilts, smaller ones. I've made a lot for um the kids of friends. But then the other half I I have made, I would say are decorative. Um, On the video, you can see the wall behind me. So I have a wall in my sewing room of full of mini quilts. Um, Most of them I've made a couple of them have been made by other people that they sent to me and Instagram swaps and that kind of thing. Um, But most of the quilts I've made are either up on the wall back there, or I've given them away. Um, to people. I have one that's hanging in our bedroom um, over my headboard, although I'm going to have to take it down soon because it actually got into a show. (laughs) Um, So I got to get that one ready. And then I have a couple that uh, I've made that have hung at QuiltCon, um, which is the Modern Quilting Guild's um, yearly quilt show that are up on a shelf that I need to either 
give away or do something with. I, I'm not one of those people that just wants to have a massive pile of quilts. I, I much prefer to have a use for them either. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to give this to somebody with the express intent of like, you're going to hang it on your wall or you're going to use it with your baby and, or you're going to put it on your bed, that type of thing. So tell me a little bit about these competitions and quilting conventions and how that process started for you and continued. Um, so it's still relatively new for me. Uh, I just, the, the first quilts I had in a show was just um, this past February. So five, four or five months ago at QuiltCon. Um, QuiltCon I mentioned is the Modern Quilt Guild's yearly show. Um, I had two quilts that were on display there. One of them was kind of automatically in the show because I had written the pattern for um, a quilt of the month program that the Modern Quilt Guild has. I submitted a design that was selected and then wrote up the pattern. So that one was in just an exhibit. Um, but then my other one uh, was part of a fabric challenge that they ran. So they said, we challenge you to make some sort of quilt with these particular fabrics from this collection. Um, and uh, so I designed a quilt using those and entered it to be judged in that portion of the competition. And so that one got in and actually ended up winning first place in its category, wow, which was a huge... Thanks. That was a huge surprise. I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> um, so that was my first experience with um, entering anything in shows. And then I had another quilt that I made this spring um, for a uh, guild challenge. So we have a local chapter of the Modern Quilt Guild that has just gotten started in my area of Houston. Um, so it's called the Gulf Coast Modern Quilt Guild. And we had a challenge in the spring to, you know, make any kind of quilt using a certain designer's fabric, um, which I did. And it turned out really well. It was kind of an idea I had been playing around with for a while and used that challenge as an opportunity to, to make it happen. It was, um, I'll have to send you a picture of it, but it's uh, a very geometric kind of flowery design. Um, and kind of on a whim, I entered that one at the end of May in the International Quilt Festival, which is a large quilt show that's held every year, conveniently enough for me, in Houston. <laughs> um, and I just found out a couple weeks ago that that one was juried into the show. So that was really exciting. Um, I'm lucky that I live in Houston because I get to go to the International Quilt Festival every yeah. year and I have to travel for it. I just have to drive downtown. Um, and so I went to that for the first time maybe five years ago. Um, it's interesting because it's a really large event and I had no idea it existed until I started quilting, even though I live in Houston. Um, but so I went to that for the first time five years ago and I've been back every year. And the first year I was like, wow, this is amazing. Wouldn't it be cool if someday I could have a quilt in this show? And this year I'm going to have a quilt in it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. So yeah, maybe a little bit, we can talk a little bit more about the types of quilts that you make because people can't see them right now. They can go to yeah. Instagram and see some. Um, but do you tend to do more of the geometric, colorful type? How would you describe your quilting aesthetic? Um, probably the easiest thing is to say I'm a modern quilter. So <laughs> that I say it's easy. Um, there's also you know, constant debate about what does modern really mean. But to me, when I say I'm a modern quilter, um, I'm using bright colors, um, sometimes a lot of solids, um, just so just solid colored fabric, no prints or anything. 
Um, and I do use a lot of geometric designs, really kind of bold and bright um, is, is how I would say my aesthetic is. So if people don't know much about quilting, a lot of times what they'll picture is um, the types of things that their grandmother made, which are amazing, don't get me wrong, but they have a different look. You know, they have um, the colors might be more muted or there's a lot of applique with tiny little flowers or, you know, just more old fashioned uh, motifs. Um, and so I definitely skew more towards the, the bright and bold and straight lines and angles and geometric type shapes. Um, I'm trying to think of a good resource. You could always go to the modern quilt guilds website and I think they've got a more formal definition of it, but. And you sew clothes too? A little bit. Um, I don't do a lot. I have sewn pajama pants. I have actually, a, I'm sewing a dress. I mentioned my daughter's birthday is next week. I'm making her a dress for her party right now. Um, I've sewn a couple shirts for myself. I don't do a lot of clothes. I would like to do more, but um, I'm not so good with the fitting part and I get really frustrated with it. So I'm like, I'll just stick with quilts and their two dimensions and straight lines. <laughs> yeah, my mom is a seamstress and she it's amazing the patience that she has because yeah. like you said, when we were little, she would make Halloween costumes, but then we all studied theater in university. She did too. And so she took advanced costume classes and made like a Madame du Pompadour with the big panniers. Wow. And it takes so much like fitting and refitting. Like you can't just yeah. make it and it's done and you just put it back on the person and you take your little notes and then you sew it up again and you put it back yeah. on the person and you take your little notes and that's what she can make pretty much anything we ask for. So my sister and I are really spoiled. <laughs> that's awesome. I wish I could. I wish I could do that. I, in my experience with clothes making thus far is always that it looks better in my head than it actually turns out. And for me, it's either I don't get the fit quite right or I make a poor decision with the fabric. Like, so quilts, you know, 90% of the time are done with what they call quilting cotton. So it's just kind of right. like a medium to lightweight, like woven cotton. Um, and of course, when you get into clothes, like the options are endless. And so I've made a couple of things with quilting cotton and not been quite as happy with the result. And then I look in my closet and realize, oh, well, all of the clothes that I'm buying at the store are not made out of quilting cotton. Right. Um, and sometimes I, I'm not sure about Houston, you may have amazing stores, but sometimes it's hard to find the type of fabric that you would find clothes made of in a store when you just go to a fabric store. They have a lot yeah. of quilting cotton because people make a lot of quilts. Exactly. Yeah. The stores around me in my local area are primarily quilting cotton. I know there are some really good um, fabric stores in Houston, not in my area, but in other parts of Houston. One day I'm going to have to check it out because I'm starting to think that at least half of my like never quite being satisfied with what I'm making is fabric choice, which if I could fix that, that would make a big difference. 
Yeah, I can remember one shirt in particular. It was like a tunic top that I bought when I lived in London. And mom drew it off and she was making me like a duplicate of it. But we couldn't find exactly the right fabric. And so she made it with the closest we could find. And it's still a nice shirt, but it doesn't hang the same way. It's it's a lot more stiff. Where the other one's kind of like almost Grecian, the way the fabric will just like, whew. But but this one's yeah. a little more boxy, and so it does. And if you're buying online, you can't touch it. You don't really know quite where you're going right. to get. Yeah. Yeah, I got some fabric recently that I thought was going to work really well, and I bought it online. And when it arrived, the texture of it was just not what I had been expecting. But, yeah, if one thing I've noticed, so I, I buy a lot of what shops would call modern fabrics, what they would categorize as modern fabrics. And there has been a noticeable increase in the past year or two um, in the companies printing when they'll print a new collection of quilting fabrics on quilt and cotton, quilting cotton, they'll also throw in one or two of those prints on like cotton lawn, which is more lightweight or rayon, which is, you know, totally different entirely, um, different substrates. And I, there's definitely a an increase, I think, in the desire for people to make their own clothes. Yeah, um, yeah, that's good. And it, I think they're trying to trying to match that. Yeah, that <laughs> supply and demand. Fabrics. Exactly. So um, you mentioned the dress. Is that your main creative project right now, or do you have something else kind of coming down the line? Have, yeah, I usually have a couple different things going. Um, the dress was a spur-of-the-moment thing. Like, we went to... Joanne's fabrics last weekend because I needed some black um, plain cotton and uh, we saw this Incredibles fabric um, and my daughter's sixth birthday party is going to be Incredibles and I said huh I said Emma do you want me to make you a dress and she was like yeah so that was kind of spur of the moment I offered because I made her a dress last year and I am using the exact same pattern so I knew I could do it yeah (laughs) um but yeah, I usually have a couple different things going. I do have a quilt going right now, though it's kind of long term. Um, I decided to p- participate in a sew along that someone is running on Instagram to make um, a sampler quilt. It's 100 blocks in 100 days. So it started, uh, I think we're three weeks into it now. I, I think I posted block number 21 today. Um, so that's in progress. You know, I uh, have 70 whatever more days to go before that one's done. Um, but I think that's the only quilt I have in progress right now. I'm thinking about a couple of the QuiltCon has a couple more challenges that they've announced um, for next year. QuiltCon is in February. Um, I'm probably going to make something for one of those. I've tossed out, a, I've sketched out a couple ideas. So I need to decide what direction I want to go with those. So let's see. I'm trying to see what we've already talked about. Um, I'll just ask you these. And if you feel you've already said all there is to do, we can skip ahead. Okay. So how does curiosity play a part in, well, you have like two pursuits. Um, (laughs) so, So how does curiosity play a part in what you do? And you can answer either or or both. Um, I, I think I would say it's less a part in like the specific things that I do and more in just life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband and I actually talk about curiosity on a fairly regular basis. Um, 
because he has he has a wide array of interests too. Kind of, we we both have kind of a wide array of interests. He also um, works at NASA as an engineer, um, but has a bunch of other things he likes to do on the side, building little electronics things, um, doing astrophotography in our backyard, all kinds of stuff. So I, I think we're both kind of by nature curious people. We're, we're just interested in a lot of things. Like there aren't many things that somebody can bring up in conversation and I'll be like, and I'm just not interested in hearing about that. Like, let's change the subject. Um, I can pretty much always come up with some questions to ask about about whatever you're talking about. Um, you know, I like to read a lot. I like to look around online a lot. I like to see what other people are doing. I like to see what else is out there. Um, so I think it's just more of like a fundamental um, personality trait you know, yeah. some people are just interested in a lot of things and like to know what's out there in the world. And some people aren't. And hopefully I'm one of those, the former <laughs> category. And so aside from quilting and I don't, what's like a, the, an, oh, the oversweeping word for what you do at NASA? Um, um, hmm. other, than, <laughs> other than engineering. <laughs> engineering <laughs> yeah. so what else fascinates you um well there's been a lot of different things over the years to be honest I'm pretty like crazy into quilting right now <laughs> um that's that's what I spend pretty much all of my free time doing um but you know we talked about all the different things I was interested in and as a kid and going into high school um you know, I still have a lot of different interests. Uh, probably the thing I spend the most time on outside of quilting is um, running. And uh, I'm going to say triathlon, even though I haven't done a triathlon in several years. I was very uh, active in our local running and triathlon community before I had kids. <laughs> Since I had kids, I still do um, run and work out, but I, I haven't done as many races, nearly as many races as I used to do. Well, that leads uh, nicely, nicely to my next question, unless you had more you wanted to say about that, uh, which is, did becoming a parent change your view of creativity at all? Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, in so many ways. I mean, there's the obvious way, which is like, once you have kids you and, and they start to talk to you, then they start to ask you questions about everything um from you know why is the sky blue to like why are we alive to like what does this word mean I mean everything you can possibly think of um so that involves quite a bit of you know either being creative and figuring out how you're going to explain something or you know being like well I don't know let's go figure it out mm -hmm. um that type of thing I'm definitely the type of parent that I, I want to be the type of parent that goes I don't know but let's go figure it out not mm -hmm. the I don't know. So just don't worry about it. <laughs> um, you know, I want to help my kids figure out what they want to know. Um, in terms of my time, though, and kind of what I, what I spend, um, people have noticed before they said, you started quilting, like, right around the time when you had kids, like, right around the time when you didn't have nearly as much free time anymore. I'm like, well, that's true. Would have been nice if I had started quilting several years earlier when I did used to have a lot more free time. But um, I think doing creative projects when you have kids and you have a full-time job and you have whatever else is going on in life, um, it makes you more focused, I think. Um, both my husband and I have kind of independently 
noticed this and talked about it in the past that, you know, we had a lot of free time before we had kids, but we would just sit around or we'd be like on the couch watching TV or sleeping on the weekend till 11 o'clock. Don't get me wrong. I would love to sleep on the weekend until 11 o'clock once in a while. (laughs) But, um, you know, we had tons of free time, but maybe we didn't always use it the same way. And now that our free time is, is a lot less, think we're both a lot more focused on on how we want to spend it and what we want to get done make sure that we're doing things that we enjoy doing that's definitely been a recurring answer for this question so oh yeah it's not just you guys for sure cool yeah Yeah. we don't have kids yet so I'm just doing market research (laughs) there you go (laughs) so say I did too much sewing uh (laughs) For the first, you know, several months after each of my yeah, kids were born. It's yeah. a transition for <laughs> yeah. sure. So if someone hasn't quilted before and they wanted to start, where would you point them or where would you suggest that they, how would you suggest that they start? I would point them to the internet. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a hundred percent self-taught mostly from um, uh, the internet and books um, around the time that I started uh, blogs were still pretty big. So there were a lot of sewing blogs. Um, there aren't as many anymore, but there are still quite a few. If there's anything quilting sewing related, you want to know how to do, you can probably Google it and find a tutorial that someone has filmed on it. Um, there's a lot of books out there. Um, and if you don't want to spend money on books, I've found that the library actually has a pretty good selection of them. Um, there are classes if, if you're interested and you're more of a hands-on learner, um, there is probably some sort of sewing store in your area, unless you live really in the middle of nowhere. Um, but you'd be surprised at where there are quilt shops these days. Um, you know, for me, I I live in a suburb of Houston and I can think of at least five or six different sewing stores that are within like a half hour's drive from me. And almost every sewing store is going to offer some kind of classes. Even if they don't um, offer classes, there's probably somebody who works there that would teach you if you ask them nicely and offered to pay them. (laughs) Yeah. And Um, when I think of quilting, I think of like the big one that you put on the bed, but you could learn with a smaller project. Is that how you start? Yeah. Um, I definitely started with smaller projects. I think the first quilt I made was a baby quilt, which was about three feet by three feet square. So it was pretty small and it was very simple, just square patchwork. It didn't have curves. It didn't even have triangles. It was just squares. Um, and that was really, um, easy. So something like that is a great way to start. Um, interestingly, there is something to be said for diving into a complicated project early on when you don't know any better. (laughs) And you don't know enough to be scared or intimidated by it. Um, there's a couple things that there's a couple projects that I made that would fit into that category. You know, I just didn't know any better. I was just like, well, I'll figure it out as I go along. Um, but there are definitely things that are easy to start with. Simple shapes, um, larger shapes. I think that first quilt I made was like five inch squares, which is pretty straightforward. Um, you can even buy fabric that comes already pre-cut into five inch squares which makes it really easy Um, but yeah start small start simple Um, you know maybe don't try to you know do 
huge swirls or anything on your first time when you first when you quilt your first quilt just do straight lines or something like that straight lines can actually look really really good um on a quilt and just take it slow and don't expect perfection um I've been quilting for seven years. My quilts are certainly not perfect. And there are people that have been quilting for way, way, way longer than me. And their quilts are not perfect either. Um, I heard somebody say uh, something along the line of, if you wanted perfect, you wouldn't use fabric. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, you're never going to have exactly crisp corners and everything come out just right. It's never going to be perfect. So you kind of have to embrace the little imperfections along the way. Yeah, that's what my pottery teacher said in college. He was, I was upset something wasn't perfect. And he was like, Sarah, if you wanted it to be perfect, you would have it machine made. Like this yeah. is handmade. <laughs> so exactly. that's part of the charm of it. It's yeah. the same with quilting. Exactly. And that's a struggle for me sometimes. I mean, I'm an engineer. I'm a type right. A personality. <laughs> I want things to be perfect. And so I constantly have to remind myself like, no, it's fine. Or, you know, ask myself, I see this, but if is anybody else looking at this ever going to see this? And usually the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we always see it because we're in the weeds. Exactly. You're, yeah, you're your own worst critic, right? That's the case for everybody. Yeah. Well, it has been great to talk. I can't believe it's already been almost an hour. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> wow, that yeah, did go fast. <laughs> it did. It went, we had so much to talk about. So for anyone, or let me start that over, um, where is the best place for people to find you online? Um, so if you want to see my quilting, uh, it would be my Instagram account. So I'm Saroy, S-A-R-O-Y on Instagram. Um, I also have a blog that's at saroy.net. Um, that blog has been going for about 20 years. So <laughs> there is months of content there, but I recommend you don't dig back too far or you'll find all my angsty college (laughs) days. (laughs) Um, But I post a lot of my quilting projects there. And I also post uh, just about, you know, what's going on in my life in general, my kids, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it's been great to talk. And I'll definitely let you know if I end up in Houston sometime. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to meet you in person.